Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. So what we're going to do next is John and I are each going to share for about half an hour with some time for questions, interactions, and really the focus of this next time is to give you some tools, some things both spiritual, mental, but also kind of just some logical tools to help you think through and discern, you know, how you're going to use AI as a believer in practical, everyday ways. And what I'm going to start with is talking a little bit about roles. You know, in life, we all have roles we play, right? Like the example of a, a sports team, um, you know, who, who is exercising together, right? A team, they have, everyone on the team has a different role they play, right? They have different things that they're doing for the team. And everyone kind of knows what their role is, right? That's how a team works well together, right? And, and then think about um, if you're at school or at work and you're working on a project, right? You know, you, you know what your role is. You're the project manager. You're a subject matter expert. You're delivering a certain thing. Maybe you're the, the person who's in charge of this part of the project. Or maybe at school you're working on something where you, have to, um, where you have to build the PowerPoint or you're researching this one part. You know, we have the roles that we play. And these roles help us to interact and work together. And um, in, in reality, what's happening with AI is we're, having, we're adding another player to the set of roles, right? We now have an artificial player that is part of our calculation, essentially, as we think about the roles that we give each other and that we manage. I even think about, like, at a wedding, right? There's roles you play. You have best man, you have the maid of honor, you have the bride, the groom, you have the guests, you have the mom and dad, and everyone has their roles, right? So as we think about AI, what we're really doing is we're going, okay, We've got a new player on the field. We've got a new piece of the puzzle that's this artificial intelligence that can do all these things. So the, really the question is, well, what should it do, right? And that's not a question for the AI to determine or Google to determine or Apple. It's a question for us to determine in, in prayer with God, with the direction of the Holy Spirit. You know, and as I thought about roles in Scripture, I, I thought, you know, a great example of roles is the Trinity, Right? You know, in, in John chapter 14, it says, if you love me, Jesus is saying, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now, just think about that verse for a minute. Think about the different roles that are pl being played there by Jesus, the Holy Spirit, um, by God the Father. Um, there's specific things that each one is doing on our behalf, for us, with us, um, it's no different in our lives, right? And so the question is, what can we learn from how God looks at these things and how God, even among the Trinity, discerns roles? And how could we then use some of those same skills and abilities to discern the roles that we're going to have to make um, a case for as we work on some of this stuff? You know, one of the ways to think about AI is like a volcano. I don't know if you heard, but in Iceland, they've had a thousand earthquakes in the last day underneath this set of volcanoes. And so that's a sign that something's about to blow, right? That's a really good sign that you're in trouble. Well, with AI, um, it's a lot like seismic activity ahead of an eruption. AI's been developing for years, right? Think about the telephone. Um, it started in 1792 as the semaphore, and then 84 years later till we got what we would now call a telephone. Well, with AI, the same is true. It's been 86 years in the making. The people that were thinking about the very first computers way, way back in the day, they were imagining this day already. That, um, like, philosophically, 
uh, the way they were thinking in their minds was this was the kind of thing that they were thinking of. And so there have been people that have been doing all this planning and designing of products and solutions, all with this idea that someday there would be an artificial intelligence that would be able to manage all these kind of things. The problem is, is that for the average consumer, for us, we just woke up one day and there was this thing called ChatGPT or one of the other ones, and it was just being talked about in the news all the time. We're like, well, what is this thing, right? So we, we are just, we are catching up on 86 years worth of thinking if we weren't like deep into this world, right? So whereas we've been doing roles a certain way for all this time, all of a sudden now, something that's been a volcano kind of building pressure underneath the ground for all these years has now kind of blew up. And we're going, oh my goodness, what does it mean? What is it, what's it doing? What, is, what are the implications? And so I think many times it can feel a little bit like that for us, right? Where we're where we feel like it's a surprise, but it's actually been something that's been building. And once we know that, then we can go back and go, okay, well, what were those people thinking? And were they thinking rightly? You know, does it jive with scripture? Does it, were, they, were they actually thinking some things that, that maybe aren't super helpful for believers to be aligning with? And, and how would we make some of those decisions? So I guess, first of all, let's start with where does intelligence come from? Right? That's, when you think about the name artificial intelligence, then the first question is, of course, well, what do we mean by intelligence? Of course, we know that the Lord grants all wisdom. So all real, true, actual intelligence comes from God, right? Artificial intelligence is exactly that. It is an artificial um, image or example or, or, um, or it's an artificial version of the thing that God originally created. And why did we create an artificial intelligence? Well, in a lot of ways, the reason we did it is because we can control it, right? Um, our intelligence is something God controls. God gave it to us. It's very mysterious. That's not comfortable for us as humans who are fallen, who want control in our worlds, right? So we created an artificial intelligence that we can control. Now, it just so happens that we actually don't know how it works either, so... <laughs> We kind of did to ourselves the very thing that we were trying to avoid doing. Um, and on our best days, we go, we're doing this as a tool to help us better do what God has put us on this earth to do. But on our worst days, we're going, you know, I don't actually need God. I can kind of do this on my own. I've got this artificial intelligence that's mimicking a lot of what God gave me. So I'm just going to use that instead, and I'm not going to bother talking to God about this. Think about some of the replacements that we've, um, that we've used for God throughout Scripture, right? The fruit was a replacement for God's wisdom, right? It said, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I'm going to go ahead and grab that, and I don't need to talk to God about this anymore because I'll know all that stuff. Or think about the bricks in the Tower of Babel. Hey, I don't, I don't need to trust God for this. We'll make our own tower. We'll reach God all on our own, right? Or the gold in the calf statue, you know, I, just thinking about that the other day, I was reading that passage how they literally were in the presence of God, Moses left for a while, and how quickly they needed a replacement. It was like, we don't know exactly how long it was, but it wasn't long, where they said, you know, this Moses guy's not showing up anymore, so we're going to go, we're going to go take care of this ourselves. We're going to make a replacement. Or I was thinking about the example of the offering in Saul's hands. You know, Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to do the offering, and then they were supposed to go into battle. But Saul's a, you know, a leader of men and women and, and mobilizing an army. He says, I can't wait any longer. I just got to go do this thing. 
He took control, replaced God, replaced what God said, and did the offering, and then we know what happens. So whatever we worship essentially ends up being a replacement for God, right? We worship a lot of things in our world. Why do we replace God in our world so easily? Well, you know, I think um, these three reasons jumped out at me. One is urgency. We need to get it done now on our timeline. And so we replace God because God's time is always different than ours, right? God's timing is always different, and so we replace God with the thing that we can control. Um, sometimes it seems like the thing that we, we have is just as good as what God's given us, right? So we go, hey, this looks pretty much just the same as what God would give me, so I'll just do my thing because it's easier for me to do what I want with my own thing. And then finally, I think the, the one that I see all over the place in AI right now is pride. AI tells me that I can manage it on my own. I don't need God. I don't need other people. I can solve this. And it puffs us up and shows us that we are greater than we really, really are. I love this quote from Francis Schaeffer. He said, as my son Frankie puts it, humanism has changed the 23rd Psalm. They began, I am my shepherd. Then sheep are my shepherd. Then everything is my shepherd. And finally, nothing is my shepherd. And I think what's going to happen for a lot of people is they're going to end up saying, actually, AI is a pretty good shepherd. I'll just go with that. And that's how people's brains are going to get wired as they trust more and more and more in these kind of tools. But in the end, a tool is simply that, right? It's, a tool is simply something that has a bunch of assumptions baked into it. Um, it can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And the question then becomes, well, what's God going to end up doing with it, Right? We, we, we know that God's going to work it out for good, but as we look at the tool itself, we go, God, I don't know exactly how you're going to do that. How are you going to make this thing that seems so big and scary and kind of unpredictable, how are you going to make that turn out for good? And I, I kept going back to uh, Joseph and what he said about uh, his brothers, right, who sent him into slavery. He said, what you meant for evil, God turned out to be good. I mean, think about all the days and nights that Joseph sat sitting in jail or in Egypt, and going, what is this all about, God? But he had so long of wondering. And I think we're going to have lots of times like that, too, where we wonder, God, what's this all about? Why are you doing this? This doesn't seem to make any sense, or the way this is working out is so different than I thought. And, and so um, trusting that God has a plan to use even something that seems so counterintuitive to the ways that we say, hey, this is the way God would want it done. God's still going to use it, and, and it's a bit of a mystery to see how he's going to do that. So I want to talk for a few minutes about our response, give you a few thoughts here. Um, I've seen three kind of ideological responses to something like AI. You see them in lots of other areas too, but I think they apply in some interesting ways here. And so one is a kind of my way or the highway kind of ideological approach, saying, I know the truth about this thing, AI, and you have to do it the way I'm thinking it has to be done or it's wrong, right? So we'll have some people say, all AI is bad, right? Or all AI is wonderful. Um, that's a problematic response, right? We need a little more nuance than that, but a lot of people are there. Then we see a lot of people taking a very pragmatic approach. They say, whatever works, right? If AI helps, let it use, let, let's use it. If it doesn't, don't use it. Whether or not it's right or, or appropriate or whatever, they're essentially being very pragmatic about their response. And then the third way I've seen people respond is 
is a bent towards action, so it's very practical, but it is aligned with values. And that's the one that I want to I want to suggest is the one that I think has the most is most aligned with 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 being able to have a biblical worldview because we're saying, listen, um, we we need to be practical, right? We, we've got a whole world of tools that God's given us to use. He wants us to take advantage of those, but if they come into conflict with our values, we need to stop and ask some really, really hard questions. Say, so what does it mean if this tool that I want to use doesn't align with the values that I know are in the Bible? Do I need to modify how I use it? Do I need to not use it at all? Do I need to use it but with some caveats? And it's in that wrestling, that discernment, that I think that's the place where the church needs to really help people. You know, I think we, you know, here today, obviously, we're a subset of our larger body, and our larger body is going to be asking a lot of these questions. And as we kind of wrestle with it, we can then help them to think through some of that and, and process some of that and come out with some responses that aren't so ideological or pragmatic, but are really more practical and biblically based. You know, one of the reasons why um, pragmatism is, um, is so rampant when it comes to AI is because modernity has trained us that whatever the next technological advance is, is what we should do. You know, if you ever saw the Oppenheimer movie, this quote, I think, is the, is the most um, like, um, emblematic quote of this in my mind from Oppenheimer. It says, when you see something that's technically sweet, go ahead and do it. And, of course, he's the guy that invented the atomic bomb, which, you know, that was kind of his rationale for that, right? But what he was saying was, is if you can, go ahead and do. And that's how a lot of people are viewing things around AI right now. If you can do it, go ahead. And I think as the church, we have a little bit of a different lens on that, right? We're not just saying if you can, do. The question is, well, should you, right? And what are the values you would use to discern what you should and shouldn't do. So we really have to kind of have an ethical framework. We have to ask ourselves, you know, what are the things that God would care about related to this technology? And what are the things that, that, that God would say, no, that is actually going against what it means to be human. Um, I've been working on the ethical framework for SIL where I work. We just finished a three-month-long process. SIL is very academic, and there's lots of PhDs and they nerd out on this stuff. So, so we've got lots of documents and things around this. But what's been helpful about it is when you have an ethical framework in place, as you go to handle the really hard situations, you can go look at the scripture you picked and go, does this align with the scripture that we said is important here? And if it doesn't, you say, ah, you know, we shouldn't do that or we should change it. Um, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission from the Southern Baptist has done a great um, AI ethics statement you can look up online. UNESCO has a really good one. The ITEC is an institute that's connected to the Vatican. And actually, the Catholic Church has done a ton of really good work in this area. Very mature work as far as well thought out and all that. So there's lots of cool stuff online. So as you're thinking about your own view of ethics and AI, there's lots of good stuff to work from. You can read up and process and think. So you don't have to start at zero. And you definitely don't have to ask ChatGPT what the ethics of itself would be. Because as we can imagine, that's a little problematic, right? Yeah. Yes. That's when we get iRobots. That's right. Yeah. Um, the next tool I want to give you is postures. So one of the things I think is really helpful is to think about the postures we bring to something. So we have our, we have our mental framework, our ideology, our, 
way we mentally think about it. Then we think about the postures that our spirit comes to AI with. And the four that I found really, really helpful are these four. Humility, learning together, grace, and values. First of all, humility. This is changing on a day-to-day basis. If, you, if anyone tells you they know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow with AI, they're wrong, let alone six months from now. So we have to have a great sense of humility to say, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, God, we need to trust you and trust those you put into our lives. Learning together, I mean, we need to do this together because it's going to change so much for each of us that we're really going to have to ask a lot of hard questions. And that's best done in community, right? Say, how are you dealing with this as you deal with how it affects your job or how it affects your hobbies or or, you know, schooling, or your Bible study, or whatever it might be. We're going to need to have a lot of grace for each other. There's a lot of people that, when a change this big comes, are going to respond with anger, with frustration, with, um, with lashing out. We're going to respond really differently when our job is on the line, or when something really weird is inserted into our world that we can't have much control over, right? This is going to really impact us. So we have to have a lot of grace for each other when we feel a lot of different things about this, right? And acknowledge those feelings. It's okay to feel when something is lost or when you're going through something challenging. And finally, those values. You know, what are the values that we're using to make these decisions? Um, I love Abraham Kuyper, and he has this awesome quote. Obviously, where it says man here, obviously it's men and women, but I'll just read it as he wrote it. It says, Wherever man may stand, whatever he may do, or whatever he may apply his hand in agriculture, commerce, and in industry, or his mind, in the world of art and science, he is, in whatsoever it may be, constantly standing before the face of his God. He is employed in the service of his God, and he is strictly to obey his God above all. He has to aim at the glory of his God." And I think about in the world of AI, there's a lot of believers out there helping to form and create this. One of the things that, that, um, that you may not know but is, uh, is the case is that the, um, I'll just give you an example from my world. Scripture is one of the most structured, um, widely available documents in the world for AI to be trained on. You know, we've got Bibles that's lined up verse by verse with audio, video, and text in hundreds and thousands of languages which means that Facebook and Google salivate over the Bible data because it helps to train these AIs in all these different languages really well. So just like the Gutenberg Press, remember the first book they printed was the Bible? Well, the first book that really was used to train AI was probably Scripture. And so God, God's at work even in this stuff in ways that we don't even understand. He, he knew that from the beginning of time that that work would be used in ways that would then influence these people. We've got, um, we work at Purdue University with uh, students all the time. Most of them in the advanced degrees in data science are from India and China. And so we give them challenges around scripture texts in multiple languages to work on AI challenges. So you've got atheists and Hindus, mostly, most of them aren't believers, who are uh, geeking out on Matthew chapter 5. And they're loving it because it applies to their love for the fact that they speak multiple languages and it's really practical. But they're not believers. But they're reading Matthew chapter 5 over and over and over again and working with the data. It's, it's, so God's doing things when we're in industry, when we're in industry, when we're involved in these things. God's, 
God's using that. And so we don't want to not be present just because it's scary or intimidating or we don't know the, the results. So real quick, um, we've actually talked about some of this already. Um, I wanted to highlight, you know, just the impact it's going to have on jobs. So out of 10 workers, about 10% will have, or about six workers will have about 10% of their jobs affected by chat GPT or GPT stuff. Um, for about two workers, 50% of their job will be impacted. So these are some of the areas. I just wanted to show you these real quick. So low exposure, we, you know, someone was talking about, you know, someone's still going to have to fix your plumbing, right? You know, AI is not going to fix your plumbing. But things like legal stuff, right? Um, things like uh, writing, um, routine, repetitive things, information processing, things will have high exposure. So low exposure, cement masons, cooks, stone masons, tire repairers, dishwashers, right? Things that are very physical aren't going to be easily replaced, but interpreters, translators, the world I live in, easily replaced. So we're going to have a huge impact in, in a certain fields and, and thinking through the impacts of that. I thought this was really helpful, this infographic. The redder parts of the world are the ones that see AI as harming, and more harming than good, and the orange or yellow is more good than harming. So China right now has a very optimistic view of AI versus much of the, um, the Americas would have a pretty negative view. A lot of people are really struggling. Now in China, um, because, because of how their society is and everything, they've, they've, kind of been, they've kind of been conditioned to accept a lot of this stuff. And so you're going to see China really take off and really lead the way in a lot of these areas. I'm going to skip that one. Um, so what I want to talk about for just a minute, give you a few examples, and then we'll open it up for a question or two, and I'll hand it over to John, is I want you to imagine that you have a knob, right? a knob that goes from zero to ten, right? And on any activity you do, any time of day, you get to put that knob at the point you want to put it. So zero is no AI, right? This is completely human activity, and ten is completely AI, and what I would like to suggest that we're going to have to do as believers and as humans is to every activity we do throughout our day, we're going to have to adjust that knob. There's no activity that you won't have to adjust that knob some. Um, and so you're going to have to learn a new skill as a believer to, in walking with the Holy Spirit, adjust that knob every activity you do and figure out what, where does the right amount of human engagement that best honors God with what you're doing, but also uses the tools that you have access to. So here's an example. So a use case is creating an article, right? You write, and Grammarly is a service that allows you to check your, your, your spelling and your grammar and, and do, does some editing, right? But I'm writing the article, right? So I write the article, but Grammarly is running, and it does my little spell check thing and all that. And most of us have experienced that in Word or Google or Grammarly, etc. cetera. Uh, that's pretty low on the AI side, right? I'm writing the article. I'm doing a lot of that work. Now, imagine if you had given that article to ChatGPT, you would have to turn that knob way up, right? You essentially outsource the writing of that article to artificial intelligence instead of doing it. Now, you are doing an editor's job. Think about designing a book cover, essentially a graphic where, where you tell the AI, I want a picture um, Oh, actually, sorry, I didn't change the title. I had used a different example. Uh, 
think about writing a toast. Yeah, this is what I was going to do. Writing a toast for a wedding, okay? So imagine that you have to give a toast at your friend's wedding, and you say, I, I put it up here, I'm doing a toast for a friend's wedding this weekend. They both love dogs and travel. Um, they fell in love um, on online dating website and have been dating only five months. They're both going to law school, and I'd like uh, it to be funny but respectful and 100 words. And then I get a toast, right? And that's high AI, right? So I've decided at that moment that I want AI to do more of the work. I've made a decision about the level of humanness that I want to give to that person. So I've essentially outsourced what could have been a highly personal human gift to that couple, and I've let artificial intelligence do it. Now, there may be a reason to do that, but I had to make that choice, right? And I think what we have to realize is in our world, we're going to have to make those choices for everything, and we're going to have to ask God, what level of human investment do you want me to make uh, for this thing? Another example is a resume, right? You used to have to sit in there and craft your resume for a job, target it to a certain employer. Now there's a service like this one that I highlighted here. Uh, it'll just punch out a resume straight from your LinkedIn profile with almost no work on your part, right? And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's really helpful. Here's an example of maybe you use an editing tool um, to edit a video you created, and that editing tool has some AI tools in it. So, you know, you're using some AI, but you're doing a lot of the work. You're, you're chopping and clipping it and doing all those things. But then you want that same video to be available in Spanish. And I can actually hit a button and make that, that video available in Spanish with almost no work on my part. That's almost all AI, right? So I had to make a decision that that was, that AI could do good enough Spanish for my purposes. Um, maybe that was a poor decision. Maybe it was a good decision. But I still have to make that decision. Uh, here's an example in my world. In my world, we have translators working around the world to translate scripture or to develop literacy materials. And some people think that the use of AI is essentially going to be, it's no longer going to be that lady working on a computer translating something. Now it's just going to be a computer pumping it out. When really what it's going to be is more like this, right? Where she's still sitting there translating, but now she has all these tools that do all this extra work, right, that help her be more effective and all those sorts of things. So what I, I guess what I'd like to challenge you and maybe open it up for some questions of some, maybe some examples you've thought of or things that jump to your mind is, is that this is, is going to require a huge amount of discernment on our part. Um, all these tools are wonderful and useful, but we're going to have to make choices, right? Is this the moment when a machine is appropriate is this something that God would want me to use a machine for? Or is this something that actually gets in the way of a truly human ministry opportunity? And those decisions won't be easy, right? It's going to take a lot of thoughtfulness to make decisions like that. So I wonder, as you guys, as I've been sharing for just for a few minutes here, um, what things jump out at you? What, what, uh, what decisions or what, um, what situations does this bring to your mind that maybe you're going to have to wrestle with and turn that knob between zero and 10, any, anything that uh, jumps out at you? Do you think AIs will have personality, not humorously or anything like that, but as far as be able to discern this AI group is, leans more to the right, oh. this AI leans more to the left with their answers, 
This one is pretty much down the middle, but there seem to be a little more conservative. This seems to be a little more liberal. Mm -hmm. Will you be able to discern this at some point in time when you make your selection? Yeah, that's a great point. You're going to be able to, the creators of those AI tools will be able to embed um, preferences into them. And so just like we have to watch media outlets and say, um, everyone has biases, right? So this media outlet has these biases, this media outlet has these biases. We're going to have to do the same with all the AI tooling. That's right. Um, there'll be AI tooling that, that leans one way or the other on a variety of issues. And that's going to require a lot of discernment on our part as well. Yeah. Um, just some examples from my uh, like personal life and working life. So I am a finance and program manager for a nonprofit that is in the online education industry for K-12. So um, a lot of my like special project management or a lot of the people that we work with, um, you know, want to develop content for children um, and it needs to be quality. It needs to have, you know, the right standards. It has to align with like data privacy because you're talking about you know, data of children. Um, and so it's been a massive disruption um, in, in like the education industry in, in a whole, as a whole. Um, but what we're seeing as a positive is a lot of the teachers, you know, recognize that like, hey, if things can grade my papers or if there's certain tasks that like they're rote, they're routine, you know, I hate doing them because it takes me away from time with the kids, which is what I'd really like to be doing. Um, they're recognizing some of those benefits or like you were saying with the language translation, there's a lot of um, social emotional learning or special needs that can be accommodated by incorporating something, you know, super quickly you can translate this to Spanish or Chinese or um, whatever the student may be needing. Think of like refugee and immigrant status. Um, so there's a lot of, obviously like they're wrestling with plagiarism, you know, with the kids and how to get them to wrestle with all of that. Um, but there's so many really cool opportunities to like use it as a tool and to make space for the human element that they really actually need. Um, and that AI cannot replicate and isn't, shouldn't be designed to. Um, and then we've actually joked about uh, having, letting, having John like, utilize it for the devotional content just to like, make the template and then he go in there and you know, tweak it, which he has not done. Um, but just considering that, like, I mean, that's a, quite a bit of time that he spends on that, which I mean, is appreciated. Um, but is there a way that he could ethically use that to generate some data or, you know, some research um, and get back a little bit of time so that he could spend that with other people as well? Yeah. Or is the value to people truly his time in his own, you know, human research of looking at all these books and curating that himself? So some of the things we've wrestled with on a personal level. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I think this idea that, um, that one of the things this will do is will challenge what is the truly human piece of that job? Right? And what are the things we just did because there wasn't another way to get it done? Right? Copy, paste, copy, paste, right? You know, if, if that's what you're doing, well, there's, there's got to be better ways to do some of that, right? So get, making these discernments between the truly human contribution and all the things that tools can do, it may be really helpful that way. That's right. Yeah. 
John, you've written books and you're active writer creator yourself. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, with AI being able to generate and uh, create thoughts like your own or basically take your data and uh, continue on with your own thoughts, all those types of things. Yeah. What is left for you as a creator to do? Like, how do you think about it from, um, from that lens? Like, as a, somebody who puts out new thoughts, as somebody who has new ideas, what is left for you when basically anybody on the internet now can copy and paste everything yeah. that you've ever done or, you know, publicly shared and kind of have a corpus of all that data? What is left for, for you that can't be replicated by somebody else now that, you know, that's all available publicly? Yeah, I think this is one of the, the big... The, mo the, the people that, some of the people that are struggling the most are creators of things that ha can now be essentially replicated dynamically, right? So like my kids who are, who are all three artists, not excited about AI, right? Because they, they, wa they, they want to value that, that personally created thing and the idea of, of AI generated art doesn't sound exciting to them, right? But what, what I would say is I think it's a lot like when Walmart came and downtown Main Street got essentially evacuated, right? Because Walmart now sells everything. So why do I need to go to Main Street? And then after a certain amount of time, Main Street began to come back, but in really, really different ways, meeting really, really different needs. I think with content creation, writing an article about how to fix this or that, you don't need to do that anymore, right? You know, AI is going to generate all that. So the question then becomes for a creator, what is, with all the experience that God has given me, with my unique set of experiences and observations and lived experiences and all those things, what is the unique set of things that only I could provide? And it's going to force me to really be intentional about that all the time. I can't just write an article about three ways to, you know, do X or Y or Z, right? You know, ChatGPT will be able to generate that automatically. So it's going to, the, the kind of content that is originally human will start to, I think, become more and more thoughtful and meaningful. And, but the problem is, is that it will be within a glut. Like Barnes & Noble, within the next few years, almost you know, half or more of everything you see in Barnes & Noble will be AI-generated, right? So, so when you go into, into Barnes & Noble, how are you going to know what's a thoughtful human creation versus an AI-generated you know, five ways to be a better leader, right? That sort of thing. And so I think it's going to force us to do that. So in my mind, it, it's a challenge back to me. What is my true, unique human contribution to that area rather than just pumping out generic stuff that there's actually five books already on that in different forms, right? So in my mind, that's, that's kind of what it's going to cause us to do as content creators. Just elaborating on that point, we talked about it a little bit at our yeah. table. Think about like public speakers and being able to deliver content. I think, John, to your point of you, you're going to figure out what it is that you have that's human creation and then being able to figure out how you can deliver it to an audience who appreciates it and appreciates how you deliver the experience of that unique human content that you have. Um, I, I have a, a cousin who's an artist and thinking through um, the same thing. Someone can go and create the same type of art and, and generate it all through AI and print it out or have it put on a canvas or whatever it is. And some of the things that he and I talked about last weekend is how do you create an experience where people can appreciate the art you do 
in a physical experience to where that becomes the value. Being able to watch someone create and, in, and someone who's non-creative, that there's, there's an emotional reaction to being able to see someone do something that you have to figure out how to tap into. I think that that'll be a big thing where, like you said, it's gonna be a glut for a period of time where the information's out there. And if people choose to interact with it in a way where all they want is the information and not the experience of how they receive that information, I think that's the gap of how you, of how you figure out from a creative side the different ways to deliver that information to where it can be beneficial to other groups of people or specific groups of people who appreciate it in a different way than they had in the past. Yeah, yeah experience, I think you're right, is gonna be a key part of it. The experience you create rather than just the product that you create. And so which puts the church in an amazing position because we're all about creating relational experiences for people to, to get to know God and to grow in him. So I think, I think it actually, in the end, um, AI is going to, AI being normative in people's lives will make the church look way more interesting and cool to people because it will be such an odd thing to have that level of dynamic experience and relationship that is relevant and specific to you that isn't just generated um, artificially. Yeah. Which type of book like a fiction or nonfiction book is like more likely to be written by AI? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think both of them. But I think the nonfiction is more likely because the internet has all the data on five ways to do this and ten ways to do this and how to catch a fish and everything like that. So that's the stuff that will be the easiest to create AI with. But I think that as, as if you've gotten to play around with it and you've gotten to say, write me a story about this, it's starting, to, you know, it's starting to do a lot of good stuff with that. So, because it sucked in so many stories, right, that it's able to generate now new ones. So I think, I think it'll be nonfiction first, and then it'll be fiction second. Um, and I think the fiction one is the hardest one for us to deal with because if it writes really good fiction, how do we differentiate human fiction from AI fiction? And what's unique about the human fiction when it's all fiction anyway, right? Right, you know, what, what makes it truly human that it's fiction, right? So I think that's a, really, that's a really good question. I really like that one. I think um, in, in our industry specifically at work, we're seeing a lot of movement towards uh, the progression in product development, R&D especially, and uh, even up to the point where we're reserving actual physical processor cores for... Mm things like internet security or um, safety protocols. Uh, just, I think that's in precaution to the future on, okay, as a hierarchy, like this artificial intelligence has the capability to reach out and gather data, but what repositories does it have access to? And how do we protect those things on a digital platform? So <clears throat> really, I mean, my excitement comes from like a local, you know, database where we could say like, here's the data I want you to control and I can kind of uh, almost uh, anticipate the outcomes to it. I give you this data, I have, now I ask my question or I use only these things to populate the answer, right? But I think from like a more global standpoint or like a, uh, you know, business standpoint, things that people are really concerned about is where it's accessing the data from, how it's yeah. able to kind of put those 
those hands out there and grab it and, and where it's, it's possible to grab that stuff from. So from your perspective, have you seen, you know, these precautions kind of already coming about or have you heard of these things like, you know, even reserving um, processor cores specifically for the activity of managing uh, safety or internet safety communication protocol? Yeah. So AI is the, is the security person in the IT department's worst nightmare because it can, it can create viruses faster than you can patch viruses, right? And, and to your point about security, how do you keep your data from getting sucked into this black hole? Yeah, the amount of people, I think one of the, area, one of the job areas that will need a lot more people <laughs> is anyone working in security-related fields um, to essentially guard against all the things. So we're, we're essentially creating all these things that we're going to have to guard against now, right? So one of the, you know, one of the ways to uh, encourage people as they're thinking about careers is going, we, we, we essentially need people to protect us from the things we've now created, right? And we're going to need a lot of people because the things we've created are prolific and they work 24-7. And so, yeah, no, I think companies are going to have to spend millions of dollars to protect themselves from the very thing that they empowered. And that's kind of back to what Andy Crouch said that John was talking about. You know, we, we get marketed all the good stuff, but we, they don't tell us the painful back end of that process of, well, it's also going to mean that you have to do this, this, and this. And that's just the reality of... Uh, but no, Kevin, that's a great point. It's absolutely going to create huge amounts of work and effort and cost and and processing power and all those things, yeah. Yes, yeah, one of the key statements around ethics is around privacy, right? Because essentially, um, how do you guarantee privacy for people in a world where everything gets sucked into that big black hole, yeah? Yeah, so thinking with the knob analogy of the zero to 10 AI involvement. Um, I think the thing I'm trying to figure out in day-to-day -day life is that at what point do I need to be transparent about mm. the involvement of AI in the task? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I'm curious with your thought process, is there a point in that knob range that I put something out of where I, you know, if it's over five, should I be transparent? If it's right. over three, should I start telling people? You know, I think about with media stuff, you know, when I edit a photo, and this button has existed forever, where I can click auto edit, it does 80% of the work, and then I take it from there. Saves a lot of time. But I've never once thought about telling people and being like, hey, just so you know, I clicked auto edit and then did a bunch of stuff because it's right. the photo I took. I still did more to it. But if it's fully writing an article, fully, you know, tr even translating a video, as you said, it feels like there's some what responsibility to be transparent. But it's the in-between stuff that I don't know when to gauge. Yeah. At what point do I need to start telling people that there is involvement? Yeah. yeah, this is real. This is a key area of ethics that is so hard because, like you said, AI has been in our systems for a long time. Siri and you know, photo fixing and all that. So we've kind of gotten conditioned to it. We've never thought about it till it became so significant it could do it all on its own. Then we're like, wait a second, right? 
how does this work? And so I think um, maybe one way to do it is, number one, to say, um, um, to ask the question, um, did, what I do, did what I use AI for in this situation cause it to be something that would impact the person who's perceiving it in a way that's beyond what I would have been able to do on my own? Like, essentially, did I do something so different that now they need to understand that AI, that AI, AI was part? Um, or it's fundamentally, it's just, a, it's just a simple modification on something that I did the way I wanted to do it for the reasons I wanted to do it. Like, so like using Grammarly, I don't need to tell people that I use spell check. And th- but AI is in all the spell check now, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think I have to tell that, people of that. But if AI wrote the article, I need to tell people. Um, so it's about, so it really has to do with who initiated and, what's, and what people are going to perceive. So it's really, it's, that's why so much discernment in the Holy Spirit's needed because there's no fine line. Now what's going to happen is government and different associations will start to make rules around it. So they'll say, when this happens, you have to, you have to declare, right? So, so institutions will start to kind of police this a bit, like, just like, the, like Meta has done with political ads. Any AI used at all, you gotta, you got to declare, right? So that's an example of someone who's kind of making that decision for you. But in a lot of the situations, it's going to be about what is the most honest representation of what I've done. And I think in a lot of cases, um, that honesty, um, again, it's going to be a personal judgment call rather than a, someone telling you. One, one of the cool tools you can go to is something called Verified Human, verifiedhuman.co or something, I forget what it is. You just Google verified human. But um, it's actually a service set up to, um, that you can sign up for and say, I'm going to sign up for this standard, and I'm going to use this logo to show people that the works that I do are verified human. Right? So it's essentially like a watermark for your stuff that lets people know, hey, this is human stuff, not auto-generated stuff.